Thank you so much, choir. So much joy in your music. The honeymoon is over. How often have we heard that? The honeymoon is over. Even we pastors hear that after we've been in a church so long. Pastor, the honeymoon is over. Why do we say that, do you suppose? You know, we can't sustain a honeymoon level of intensity forever. We can't foresee the irritations that come with lifelong familiarity. We can't stay as fit and handsome as we once were, or we can't come up with enough new things to keep the relationship fresh. You see, it's because we are so finite. We are so limited, and we're living in a broken world. But God says his romance for us is like a bridegroom over a bride. With God, the honeymoon never ends. And God is infinite in power, infinite in wisdom and strength and omnipotence and love and grace and has no trouble whatsoever keeping a honeymoon level of intensity. God's love is truly amazing. His grace is awesome and it's holy unlike the world and what it offers. And that's why we're in a series right now. We're calling it I Am. And we're posing the same question to you as Jesus posed to the disciples. And he said, who do you say that I am? And so we ask you, who is Jesus to you, really? And during this series, we are calling upon you to really plant firmly your feet upon God and upon the rock of Jesus Christ, and to rededicate your life to serving God. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, the most important thing you believe in life is what you believe about God. Stop and think about it. It affects every other area of your life. It affects how you deal with the past, how you face the future, and how you're going to live in today. And unfortunately, there's a lot out there that can distort your view of God. A lot of things out there that can really cause you to have a misconception and a misunderstanding about God. Your background can have a way of distorting your view of God. Painful experiences you have in life can distort your view of God. The media can distort your view of God. Other people, what they tell you, can distort your view of God. Your own insecurities, your own immoral failures, your own inclinations, it can all distort your view of God. And if you don't have a true understanding about God and what God is like, then you will build your life on a faulty foundation that can surely be collapsed, surely be sinking sand. Now, here in the writings of 1 John that we've read today, we find three definitive statements here in this epistle that God is spirit, God is light, and there's an emphasis here more than once that God is love. And you know, years ago, I was with a group that decided we were going to trace a stream back to its source. Where is this stream coming from? And we got up early one morning and we went through the brush and the trees and up and down the hill and we finally came to a little spring. It was the source of this stream. And I believe that's what John here, the writer, is doing as he's weaving his way throughout this epistle telling us what God is like. And he says, love is of God for God is love. 
And this does not mean that love is God. Love does not define God, but God defines love. And the theme of everything that John writes is that God is a God of love. And John here in this text is absolutely overwhelmed with this thought and this great truth by sending the wonderful truth that God loved him so much that he sent his only begotten son in the world that he might have life. And this truth meant more to him than anything else. And it really resonates from the page here. God is love. And you know, when John wrote those words, he was writing in a time back in that ancient time years ago where that would have been such an unbelievable thought to share, that God loves. And never would the people of the pagan religions have declared that their God is a God of love. In fact, just study mainline religions today and you'll find that only the gospel affirms that God is love. And love is his nature and he can't be restrained from loving you. God doesn't love because you deserve it or you've earned it. God doesn't love you because you've got some unusual or uncanny ability or you've got some unique uh, possessions that he loves about you, but God loves you because the Bible says that God is love. And it's the very nature of God to love the unlovable and to love the enemies, to love those who reject him. He loved you when you were unlovable. And Jesus came and he died to redeem you from even the, the gutters of brokenness and pain. It was Billy Graham there that uh, said years ago, God has no grandchildren. And in other words, we all are on the same footing and arrive in the family of God in the very same way. I don't know about you, but I marvel at this thought of the love of God and really like to ponder it. And in fact, like the song goes, there's not enough, uh, you know, ink and all the pens. It would drain the ocean dry to write and tell about the love of God. But let's give it a try this morning. Let's think about some things out of this text that we can reflect upon about the love that God has for us. One is you take note of that love is demonstrated for love is a verb. Love is not like other subjects. It cannot be understood than practice. It can only be understood by practice. And it's more like measles than math. And John affirms that the essence, the very evidence here of Christian living is love. And in fact, John says the primary reason is that love has its source in God. And just like love uh, here uh, radiates from God, it's just like the light radiates from the sun. And most speak of love as, I want you to have whatever you want. I want you to love whatever you want to love. But God's love is so different than that. It's an agape love. And we should know what love is and what it looks like, and we shouldn't be deceived into accepting the world's definition of love that is grounded in feelings rather than truth. And without truth, love becomes like a boat that's untethered there at its moorings and is tossed about from every fad and everything that waves. And God is both a God of love and a God of justice. I know a lot of people have a very difficult time trying to reconcile. You're talking about a God of love, but also a God of wrath. I can't figure it out. But I remind you that if you love a person and you see them harming another person, you see someone really injuring another person or doing harm to someone else, it gets you upset. It gets you angered. 
angry. And anger isn't the opposite of love, but hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. It's apathy. And God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his subtle opposition to cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. And so love is something you do. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that you might have life, might provide for your salvation and redemption. And it says in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knows God. And we shouldn't confuse duty with love. Duty goes the first mile, but love goes the second mile. No doubt you've heard that phrase before, and that old saying, going the extra mile, is found in the scripture. For back in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was sitting there on the side, he told the, those gathered there, he said, whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him a second mile. And that's because back in the day, the Romans occupied Palestine in the days of Christ. And under the law, a Roman soldier could compel a Jewish man to carry his pack for one mile. So what did the Jewish people do? They developed this custom of placing a mile marker, this milestone, one mile from the edge of their property. And so if a Roman soldier told him to carry the pack, the Jewish man would carry the pack all right just until he got to the mile marker and then he would promptly drop it not go another inch. He had grudgingly done his duty even to the last inch. And Jesus was telling these people in the context of that, duty carries that pack the first mile, but it's love that takes it the second mile. Love is not doing something for which you receive anything in return. Love is doing something even when you know you will never receive an equal reward. God's love is holy and just, and I remind you, it's a verb. And God demonstrated his love in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who loved you that much. Secondly, as you think about this text today, you understand here something else of really importance. And that is here that we learn to accept ourselves. Now, self-love and self-centeredness are usually synonymous in scripture. But the Bible says, love thy neighbor as thyself. We see it in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19. We see it in the Gospels, Matthew 22, Luke chapter 10. Love thy neighbor as thyself. But here the Bible hints at another meaning for self-love, and it's not one that's negative. But it's one here that is um, really in a different way, not self-indulgence, but love. Of yourself. This kind of self-love has nothing to do with self-indulgence. In fact, it's seeing it from God's point of view. Because in order to know what to think about God, yourself, you need God's point of view. Who looks at you and says, you are of incredible worth. I have fashioned you in my own image. And God wants you to know that you have infinite worth in the eyes of God. And you know, if you don't like yourself, how can you love your neighbor? How can you love other people if you don't even like yourself? And I know today most, if given the chance, would like to do something with themselves. They'd like to change something about themselves. Some people complain, well, I'm too tall, I'm too short, I'm too big, I'm too skinny. And it's kind of reminding me of the lady that was uh, asking her husband one day in one of our churches, said, will you love me when my hair turns gray? 
And he said, well, why not? I've loved you through the other five shades. <laughs> we not only love to change our hair color, though, but we want the plastic surgeon to reform us, remake our face, or reshape our bodies until they just look the way we want it to look. We're not satisfied with ourselves. But if you can't accept yourself the way you are, how can you accept anyone else? And how can you love anyone else? God loves you, the Bible said, just the way you are. And you know, also here you find out there's a sustained element of love. Live each day with God's love, just like God loves you each and every day. How is love sustained? By living each day as it were your last. Are you living each day as it were your last? You know, one of the saddest moments I can recall as a pastor uh, was hearing about this man sobbing, this husband talking about the horrible argument he had with his wife over absolutely nothing. In the scheme of things, they were in this heated argument, and it didn't amount to a hill of beans, and all of a sudden, she stormed out of the house. She went to the grocery store, and she was killed in a car accident on the way back. And he's sobbing, remembering those painful moments of useless anger that even today haunts him for the rest of his life. wonder, are you living and loving each day like it was your last? Are you allowing the love of God to rule your heart? lead your life. You have sacrificial love, that godly agape love. You know, there's the story there of the king who decided to set aside a special day to honor his greatest subject in all the kingdom. And on the special day, uh, all of the court, uh, appointed people, they uh, showed up, a large crowd assembled in the king's palace courtyard, and one after another, these four different finalists were brought forward before the king, and the king was going to select the winner. And the first person that was brought out in the courtyard among all the people was a wealthy philanthropist. And the king was told that this man was highly deserving of the honor because of all this guy's humanitarian efforts. He's really blessed a lot of people. He's set up food pantries. He's given to the poor. He's helped people who are destitute in life. And he's worthy, king, of being selected. The second person was brought out and was a celebrated physician. And the king was told that this doctor was highly deserving of the honor because he had rendered faithful service. He had dedicated his life to healing people, to restoring people to health. And he had saved the lives of many people. King, he is worthy of being selected today. The third person was a distinguished judge that was let out among all the people and before the king. And the king was told that the judge was worthy because of his amazing intellect, his great wisdom, his fairness in his courtroom and his brilliant decision-making. And then the fourth and final person was brought out. And this was an elderly lady that was let out into the courtyard. And everyone was quite surprised to see her because she was so mild-mannered in her nature and she had no degrees or no fancy letters beside her name and she hardly looked the part of someone who would be honored as the greatest subject in the kingdom but then the king was intrigued and in awe when he learned that she was the teacher of the other three 
and so many more because she had no wealth or fortune or title, but she had unselfishly given her life to produce great people for she loved her students. You know, there's nothing more powerful and more Jesus-like than sacrificial love. And to quote an evangelist that said it like this, the greatest proof of God's love is a life that needs God's love to explain it. So I ask you today, who is Jesus to you? Shall we pray?